Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Kush with Room Now. This is the podcast this week, a special podcast, an interview with Dr. Ed Keystone on the 60-40-20 response seen in all the clinical trials. We're going to talk about the origin. Every patient with rheumatoid arthritis is unique, and some serologic differences may be associated with different outcomes. An exploratory study looked at two different RA treatments in patients who are positive for both anti-CCP and RF. Explore the data at rabiomarkers.com. Ed is a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto and one of my best friends and one of the people I miss during the pandemic because Ed and I on the road, it's nothing but fun. Ed, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm living the life. Oh, there you go. And <laughs> And he just told me Toronto is the Florida of Canada. So he's, they don't have snow yet. He's very, very happy. That's why he's smiling. So Ed, I want to talk about 60, 40, 20, but I want to tell a vignette that gets me into this. And that is probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we're at ULAR in Paris. You're up on stage giving like one of the plenary session talks. I think it was about sertolizumab and and I remember you telling me that you had practiced this thing over and over and over with multiple people, the company and whatever. And it was a big audience, you know, like a few thousand people. And, and, and you're up there and you give your intro, you're on your second slide and boom, the, the projector goes out. And, you know, everyone looks around, a little discombobulated. It's taken a little too long. You, you know, you know, you only have like, you know, 15 minutes here. You got to get through the data. And you say, well, let me just uh, go on. And you know, it's your, at this point, you're at the materials and methods and you're just gonna go on and do the lecture while they're fixing the, the, the projector. And he, he goes on and he has this thing memorized. So there's no notes or anything. And he gives them you know, how many patients, the design, the, what, the drugs, the doses and whatever. Now he's got to get into the results where he needs the slides to show you know, the histograms and the plots and the tables. And he doesn't have them. And so what does he do? He starts to pantomime the whole thing. He starts getting to the ACR 20, 50, 70 responses. And he starts doing it like, you know, the, the placebo response was here. And then the ACR 20 was up here. And, the, and he starts basically mimicking the slides. And the audience is going crazy, going crazy. And of course, right at the very end, the slides came back on. And of course, the funny thing that didn't happen but could have happened was that who always asked the first question? Roy Fleischmann. Right. And Roy said, if those darn slides had not come back on, I was going to get up there and say, Ed, on slide six, you showed that I was going to, you're going to, you know, fault you for your pantomime. But that was a man. What do you remember about that? I remember that exactly. I don't know whether it was what country it was in. And it was more than 10 years ago. It might have been close to even 20 years ago. Maybe. But the point is, I heard a bang. Which means there was some power problem and the screen went dead. And I said, holy shite, I've got to do something here. So I said, okay, I know the slide. So I said, look, here's the first slide, blah, blah, blah. And this is in green and this so-and-so and this is so-and-so. And the next slide you'll notice is blue here and red here. And these are the graphs. And I went through all of them and actually it was about 10 slides into it when it was back on again. Uh, so I had a good time. I had no problem. I was calm, cool, collected, and said, well, listen, when you study at that time, and I don't do that anymore, as much as I did those days, I knew it cold. Absolutely. And I was really glad that I was able to do that. 
And you know, what I remember, I mean, you really did know it cold and you really did say, all right, my second slide, my third slide, you named the slides, you said what the slide was about, you painted the picture. Again, the audience was like besides themselves because they were getting it and you didn't have any slides. It was so cool. But it, what it was about, it was about reporting the clinical trial. And of course the standard and the, the primary endpoint, and this was an ACR 20. And you know that's been the standard for so long, ACR 20, ACR 50, ACR 70 being secondary responses. But you know, when we were out there, you know, on the road doing stand-up rheumatology and lecturing and whatnot, you were the guy that came up with this idea. The ACR 2050 response is always 60, 40, 20. How did right. you come up with that? Well, in about 2004, I decided to read the literature. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I said, and I started to look at a few of the studies back then. And after looking at three studies, it, the ACR20 was 60 in, in these different studies with different biologics. The ACR, you know, the ACR50 was 40 and the ACR70 was 20. So I looked a little longer at those and it said 60, 40, 20. And then when you had a TNF failure, that was methotrexate in that responder. When you had a TNF failure, it was 50, 25, 12. So I had the 60, 40, 20 and the 50, 25, 12. And I kept using that all along. And what's even interesting is when you look at the data from psoriatic arthritis, ACR 20, 50, 70 is 60, 40, 20. When you look at ankylosing spondylitis, the ASAS, it's 60, 40, 20. I mean, it's unbelievable. I'll I mean, you, that's you know, what I find. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the ACR 20, a tool developed for RA being applied to psoriatic arthritis. I remember Lee Simon, um, who became a director at the FDA was sort of, he was against the idea of using ACR 20 because it wasn't developed for psoriatic arthritis. It was, and that's what, that's what Jeff Siegel and his team did at the FDA. But then right. when Lee got into the FDA and saw that when you applied it to psoriatic arthritis, it was just as good, if not even better, <laughs> with better separation between placebo and the ACR 20 response. So it's been incredibly durable, but this this idea of a response that is so reproducible in methotrexate IR patients, do you think it's because there's a ceiling to the measure? Is it, or is this the best we're ever gonna do in RA? You know, I've asked myself that question for 20 years now, and I don't have the answer, but we see ceiling effects everywhere, right? Not just in RA, not just ACR 20, 50, 70. And I can only say that that ceiling effect is not just the ceiling, because when you look at JAKS, you look at upadacitinib, it's not 60, 40, 20, it's 75, 45, 25. If you look at baricitinib, the four milligrams, we don't have it because we're afraid of it, so we use it too, but the four milligrams was also the 70, 50, 30. So the ceiling is not 60, 40, 20. It depends on what, your, what drug it is, and the new therapeutics are better than 60, 40, 20. Yeah, and that's, and that's and certainly that happens in psoriasis. They had their ceiling effect with a posse 75 response and, to, and that's when they were using all the drugs up to TNF inhibitors, but then once they got into IL-17 and IL-23 and, uh, and, and whatnot, then now they're measuring you know, posse 90s, posse 100s. And so the, uh, yeah, I think that there, there, there isn't a ceiling effect and it's, it is about getting better Better drugs, better trials, maybe better right. patients. Right. 
That's what's happening. It's uh -huh. clear. When I saw the data from the Jacks that were no longer 60-40-20, everybody said the 60-40-20 is dead. But what's interesting is, very interesting, if you look at the Jacks at 12 weeks instead of 24 weeks, it's 60-40-20. <laughs> when you look at and the, ACR 2050-70 of 50-25-12 also occurs within the Jack spectrum, but it isn't the same as using biologics, but it's still there, the 50-25-12 post-TNF, but it's, where is it? It's at 12 weeks instead of 24 weeks, and the 60-40-20 is now at 12 weeks instead of 24 weeks with the Jacks. So it's amazing. The numbers, and I mean, I don't know, there must be a God. That's what I said when I saw the data, there must be a God. Because all those numbers, 60, 40, 20, 50, 25, 12, still exist, but they move them from 24 to 12 weeks. You know, I want to remind the audience of the origins of the ACR 20. Um, before there was ACR 20, the cooperating clinics led by Ward and all those people, they looked for a measure that would show a true difference between a drug response and a placebo response. And they came up with the Paulus 50, right? Um, yes. and, uh, and then the Paulus 50, which had the same seven core set variables, ultimately became the ACR20. Uh, and, and it really is a measure designed to show a difference between a true drug response and an efficacious response and a placebo response. Um, do you still think it, it, it indicates that? Yeah, I still do. I mean, and how do I know that? Because Obviously, I look at the indices within the ACR 205070, the swollen joint, tender joint, the uh, issue of patient-derived outcomes, uh, even x-rays initially was, was part of the ACR 205070. So I think the elements still show a difference, never mind the 20, it shows a difference between, you know, the top line and the bottom line and all of the other elements are generally but not always uh related and the other problem is the patient derived outcomes and you know if to get remission you need more than one of this more than one of that and you didn't make a remission because the patient derived outcomes did not necessarily match the less than my minus one so i can say that yes there's relationships, but those relationships aren't always what you might have expected. So I'm going to ask you for quick hit answers on AC. What do you prefer, ACR 20 over these alternatives, patient reported outcomes? <laughs> I hate to say ACR 20, 50, 70, period. Yeah. Patient derived outcomes are fine, but they don't match necessarily the biologic uh, response. What about rapid three? All things that are, the doctor doesn't yeah, That's all patient-derived, yeah. and there's general correlations. But in fact, and I think the rapid theory is great if you don't know how to do a joint count, which may be seen not infrequently. Right. So yeah, I think relationships exist, but they're not as close or as easy as each one. What about the holy grail of science, a biomarker? Which one? A biomarker. I won't oh, say which one. I don't think I don't think a good one exists. Well, the biomarkers just haven't made it yet. 
They've tried very hard. Genetics is working on it. And there's new data from genetics now that is closer than it's ever been in terms of predicting who's going to respond or not. Uh, and that's recent data that I've seen. And it says we're getting closer. But a few years ago, when they asked me to give a lecture on the genetics and all of these biomarkers, the answer is I could not say that they were efficient, effective enough to actually say yes or no. They are getting there. So the ACR20 is a great tool. Um, Ted Pincus said a long time ago, we were at a meeting in Portugal. I know you were there because we took the flight over together, but Ted got up and said something like, um, we are failing as clinical trialists when we choose a measure that does not approximate practice. So we don't do ACR20 really in practice. These disease activity measures, of which there are many out there, CDI, SDI, even RAPID3, my gas score, do you think we should be adopting those as our primary endpoints in clinical trials with the hope that they also get used more in practice? I think uh, CDI particular, where you don't need a SED rate, for example, uh, and I think it, they're much better. They're much e Anything that's easy is what we should be using. Right. And, and these are easy. They're mathematic. You add them together. You right. don't do a square root. So the answer is yes. I definitely believe that the CDI particularly, easy to do, don't need a SED rate, just do a little bit of math, depending what grade you, you got to. <laughs> well, that's a, I'm limited by my fingers anyway, so it doesn't I know. Matter. Well, if you got to the appropriate grade to add, then those actually work. And they work well. Yeah. The one thing that concerns me about the measures we use and um, and some of the trials is the placebo rate's gone up a little bit. You know, yes, I mean, it has. It's gone, actually gone up a lot. I remember, you know, back when the psoriatic arthritis trials were rolling out, they had single digit placebo responses. You know, right. we had when we early days of RA, we had 10 to 20 percent placebo responses. Now it's not uncommon to see 35 and 40 percent placebo responses, and you're going to have to go with the, the treatment effect, the delta. That's but right. What, what's your take on that? Well, um, first of all, I think that um, the I think the placebo rates are going up because people are more interested and enthusiastic about the, the, <clears throat> the various therapeutics. And of course, if you're enthusiastic, the numbers go up. So it is an issue. And I think the delta, I think the effect size is going to become important, is becoming more important. In fact, you at least have to look at the effect size or the delta between the two, not just the results. So I think you need both. I think you need, it's okay to have the ACR 205070, but I think a delta is important. And if the delta is less on methotrexate, inadequate responder less than 25 or less than 20, you have a problem because right. then you know that there's an issue in terms of the efficacy because the placebo is too high. So, and notice that in, in, in uh, TNF inhibitors, failure, TNF failures, those deltas, that is those placebos are lower. Certainly post-methotrexate, they're now 30, 35. When you now look at the TNF IRs, they're not as high. And, and then you can see uh, at least a relationship, better relationship. Yeah, so I like that you're saying just just don't look at that top number, that ACR20. The delta is important. What do you think? You know, in, in this last ACR, a lot of discussion about the oral surveillance study 
you know, very large and, and whatnot. And the safety signals were really a little scary, but not so scary <laughs> if you consider the number needed to harm, where the numbers needed to harm were anywhere from 250 to 700, if you look at BTE. Um, right. Similarly, you know, you could look at clinical trial data and come up with numbers needed to treat or get better. Right. Right. Do, do you think about those at all? Do you think those are important? Well, I think about them, but the problem is I've tried to teach them to my colleagues and they're confused. They have a problem handling that type of data. So the companies were all very keen to use this and I thought I was great. And then when I had meetings with my community rheumatologists, they really didn't understand it and they didn't want to see it. They knew the numbers that we had. They didn't want to do numbers needed to treat because it was a whole new vocabulary for them. Yeah. And they didn't have what we have now, the, the 60, 40, 20. You can look back 20 years, at least you know where you stand. As soon as you add these numbers, and I don't disagree using them, but there isn't enough data out there to put it in context. So Jeff Curtis and I did a survey of many rheumatologists when I was doing all the surveys, and we came up with a number about 54% um, of rheumatologists measure something, a hack, right. a CDI, um, you know, a rapid three, whatever. The most right. common thing measured as a true outcome measure was rapid three at about 30%. And then mm -hmm. things like CDI at about 12 or 14%. Uh, unfortunately, vector at around, I think, 12% as well. Um, do you think docs are measuring more? Do you think docs are practicing treat to target? In fact, I mean, you can measure, but that doesn't mean you're truly treat to target. What's your opinion? My opinion is that you don't necessarily treat the target. And yes, they may measure, but we're, we are getting better because in, in when you're looking at some of the real world data, that real world data does suggest that they're actually treating to a target, a target. Um, but I, and so that's improving. I think that the issue of achieving remission or low disease state is improving because people are thinking about it. But I'm still concerned whether, and it depends on measurement. I mean, if you don't do tender and swollen joint counts and you decide and use the patient derived outcomes, there may be issues if you're tired, if you're fatigued. If you have back pain, <laughs> you know, all of those increase the patient-derived outcomes or alter them. Right. And that means it's not, but the, word, the thing I worry about most is the biology versus the emotional aspects of things. And I'm concerned that some, I know the FDA says, oh, we got to look at more patient-derived outcomes, but it doesn't always match the biology. And that's my concern. Right. Uh, I want to close with where you think we're going as far as outcome assessments in RA and, and particularly clinical, clinical trials. Do you see it changing, especially as maybe clinical trial designs may change um, going forward? Where, where do you think we might be going? Well, uh, again, I think the important thing is that people are now thinking about treat the target. I think people aren't doing, uh, you know, a well, they're not doing a tender and swollen joint count, and if they don't do counts, then they're going to need patient-derived outcomes. I think patient-derived outcomes are becoming a bigger element in how we think about patients. And in fact, in some ways, it's not bad. I mean, think about patient-derived outcomes. At least you're looking at the patient there and understanding the patient elements. The only thing I say is, when I'm doing, a, you know, an assessment, and then you have this chart, you know, 
tired, fatigued, sleepy, blah, blah, blah. And then you can tick off. And I think there has to be more, if you're going to do patient-derived diagram, you can't just say, how are you feeling today? You've got to check off in, an, in a religious way exactly what the elements are that are contributing to the patient-derived outcomes. Because it may be fatigue, you can't change it, but you have to understand why it's there. So I like the idea of doing patient-derived outcomes. I just think you have to be more uh, specific about what those outcomes are. Interestingly, uh, the EMA and the FDA, I think, are considering um, incorporation in drug development of real-world data, RWE trials. And, and so these, um, everything you just covered is going to be uh, fall under that umbrella, meaning that they're going to be more uh, impactful and substantial. So, um, yes. uh, so Ed, today is Thanksgiving in the United States. Um, it's a holiday we celebrate for when we invaded the shores of America and um, took the food away to defeat the Canadians. Yeah, you yeah. tried. I know. Yeah. So why do why do Canadians have Thanksgiving on a different day? Don't ask. I have no, <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, so you are the perfect. So I I have a series of of Canadian holidays that I know nothing about. I'm going to mention them and give you my interpretation, and then you'll tell me uh, what they really mean. And um, so. Canada Day is the day that uh, maple syrup was discovered, is what, what I would think. What do you think? Well, I think Canada Day was actually to reflect uh, the Canada as a nation in, in the date that we were eventually declared to be a nation. Yeah, I think the maple syrup holds better uh, for me. Easter Monday, I don't get that at all. You take a day off after Easter, is that a hangover issue? I don't know, I'm Jewish. <laughs> well, speaking of that, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, that sounds like a Jewish holiday. No, it, not a, it's definitely not a Jewish holiday, and it's very important. It's really one of the major things that we think about now, particularly when we found all of these graves of the individuals, you know, the First Nations people who are actually died in those homes without in the schools. Uh, without anybody talking about it. Yeah. So now I feel bad uh, bringing this up, but I'm still going to go through with this. Boxing Day, um, I'm thinking that it's an, it's an it's like your version of Christmas or something, and, and it's all about presents, and you couldn't call it present day, so you call it Boxing Day. What do you think? Yeah, that, that may be the case. Uh, it's, a holiday, it's a marketing holiday, is all I can say, a marketing holiday, and it's you want to sell more, and you want to give back the stuff you don't like. And so that's where it is. And Victoria Day, it sounds like continued infatuation with the Queen. Yes, we are infatuated with the Queen. Queen, And it's Victoria Day. It was the birthday of the Victoria of the Queen years ago. And it's an important holiday for us because we still feel connected to the, to the monarchy. Don't um, ask me why, but we're connected. Yeah, and we're connected, but in a spiteful way. And that maybe is a lot of the American personality. Um, well, no, no, but I remember, I mean, it was, the, it were the, it was the, the British who gave the Americans a really hard time and they controlled it. And the Americans said, enough, we don't want this anymore. So they, you know, they threw the uh, tea overboard 
And you know, it's interesting because America is based on a military success. These things are based on a military success and therefore the military becomes very important in terms of your concept aside. Yet you can carry a gun, you know, that, that especially uh, amendment. Especially in Texas. Yep. Yes. So Ed, Ed, Ed clearly knows more about American history than I do, but then I clearly know more about the Canadian pastime hockey than he does. This is why we're such good friends. Ed, yes. Thank you for being with us and um, always have many great holidays ahead. Thanks very much. It really is lovely to talk to you once again, my friend. All Take forever. Care. Bye. <laughs> with such a broad treatment landscape for rheumatoid arthritis, it can be difficult to find an appropriate treatment option for your patients. Given that some detrimental effects of RA may be permanent, what can you do to get ahead of the situation? An exploratory study has been conducted investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population. Patients who tested positive for both anti-CCP and rheumatoid factor, which together are associated with higher disease activity. This study may suggest a different way to look at RA patients. See the results for yourself at rabiomarkers.com.